Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to the podcast. It resolves up to speed with Formula One. It is a Sunday night, April 24th. Uh, just sitting here chilling out with my good friend, Mr. Mark Hamilton. And uh, we enjoyed uh, quite the weekend at uh, Imola, but uh, we're, we're not going to get into it right now. We actually pre recorded uh, a race review with our good friend from uh, TSN, Mr. Tim Haraney. So that's coming up in just a couple of minutes. But before we throw it over to our conversation uh, with, with Tim, Mark here wanted to give you guys a couple of updates. So, Mark, first of all, how did you enjoy yeah, the so race? It was an interesting race what, weekend, what obviously first sprint race weekend of, of the year. I, I thought it was a good race weekend. And obviously, I wouldn't say anything else because I wanted people to listen to the rest of the podcast. But I did want to share a couple of updates. Thanks to everybody that reached out. Family's doing better. The fog <laughs> of COVID is lifting from yep. is lifting from the Hamilton household. So we should be back. Uh, we should be back on track in a couple of days. So thanks everybody for reaching out. Uh, we also had a lot of people that reached out this weekend about the fact that the Vancouver Formula E event was canceled. And as these things often are, the news was dropped late in the day on Friday. Hopefully, obviously missing the news cycle. We didn't miss it. Daly and I are obviously both devastated. We're pretty upset. We were super excited that there was going to be an FIA-sanctioned open-wheel racing event coming to our city. It's not going to happen. Uh, whatever news we can suss out over the course of the next few weeks about what happened or whether it's going to return in full force for 2023, we'll let you know. But what I did want to do, because we didn't do a great job of this last weekend, is I wanted to give everybody an update on the Formula One Fantasy League. So as you know, we have the Scared F1 podcast featuring Vincenzo Landino, Fantasy Super League up and running, and there were some big changes at the top this week. So we'll get into the race results, but I want to give everyone a big update. Jesse H has moved into the top spot with 945 points. Britain H continues to be a top performer with 929 points in second place. And third place is Rubens Ferrari, Ruben J with 922 points. In fourth place, the crazy bomb, Gabriel H with 915 points. Coming out of nowhere in number five from Sweden, I believe, Tom O with 909 points. Repping Salt Lake City in sixth place is Sean B with 908 points. Carl H rounds out the top seven, if that's a thing, with 905 points. In eighth place, Grayson S, Mickel and Dime with 903 points, representing the Great White North. Jesse H, once again, number nine with 901 points and rounding out the top 10. Arter, you managed to hold on to a top 10 place with 896 points. And for anyone asking, I am sitting at 202. My team consists of Leclerc, Stroll, Latifi, Norris, Perez, Ferrari, so Norris came up big for me this weekend. Leclerc less so because of that incident, which we'll discuss. Stroll finally into the points for the first time. Latifi, a bit of a redemption drive, reminding everyone that he can certainly drive a Formula One car, although not come close to the points. And then Sergio Perez rounds up my top five, and he obviously had a fantastic weekend finishing with a podium finish. So again, Congrats to Jesse H. You are leading the pool. We have not yet announced our prizes. We're still working on that, but I promise there'll be some great prizes for the winner at the end of this F1 Fantasy League season. 
You know, I'm just glad that you actually decided to push on to do the top 10 because, bro, <laughs> nobody's ever done a top seven list in, in the history of the world. <laughs> but that's awesome. Some people making some big moves this weekend. That's uh, really, really uh, good to see. Anyways, that's all we got here for the update. We're now going to throw it over to uh, the TSN Racing Pod and our good friend uh, Tim Haraney, and we're going to break down this whole weekend in detail. So that's it for us. Enjoy the pod, and we'll catch you guys in a couple of days. Mark has another right uh, making coming up in our ongoing interview series so look for that to drop early yeah yes and look for that to, to be coming the next uh, couple of days so uh, that's it for now talk to you guys soon joined by mark daly and mark hamilton uh mark squared guys what's uh, what's going on how did you enjoy the imola grand prix oh it was awesome it was a lot of good fun tim it was uh it was a little bit of everything except drs oh man i i like i like these sprint weekends i love the fact that and hopefully my employer isn't listening but i like the fact that i can slice out an hour of my day on friday to watch qualifying it it spreads the grand prix out over a a longer period of time and i I enjoy that even if it wasn't the the greatest sprint weekend we've seen it was uh, still an enjoyable weekend overall so hammy you you like the sprint races yeah i do really i do yeah. Wow. So, and, and let me defend. Let me defend my position here because I yeah. know that there is an army of traditionalists who don't don't like it at all. I think that when constructed correctly, and I don't think we're there yet, I think it can add real value to Formula One. If you're going to have a twenty or a twenty-five race calendar, that's racing overload for your traditional, your typical fan at home. My sense is that if you can build three or four, and daily, and I've been talking about this for years, but if you could build three or four majors, quote unquote majors, into the calendar on some really great race weekends, it's a cool way to build excitement and to ramp up interest in a specific weekend in a season that could drag on if you're talking 23 or 24 or 25 races. Throwing it into Imola in the early part of April doesn't seem to be achieving that. And I don't think the concept is perfect yet. I still think, and people will disagree with me, I still think qualifying should set the grid for the sprint race because now it's a sprint race. It's not sprint qualifying, even though it does set the grid for the Grand Prix. I like the fact that there's more points available this year. You've got points all the way down to eighth place. And I like the fact that the winner of the sprint race scores eight points instead of the pathetic three they scored last year. And I think that was definitely reflected in the quality of the racing that we saw this year. So while it's not perfect, I'm certainly open to the idea of doing some things over the course of a 25 race calendar to sustain interest. Mark Daly, you come across as a traditionalist. Yeah, I, I am. I, I do like the, the the qualifying format. And it was about five or six years ago when they tried that bizarre kind of like rolling knockoff oh, kind of thing that, that, that lasted oh, like yeah. what, three oh, races or whatever. I lasted a race. <laughs> yeah. I lasted in Australia and that was it. Oh yeah, that, that that was terrible. I mean, that that was, so this is for me like light years beyond what that, whatever that was that we saw back in 2017 or whenever it was. But like like Hammy says, like it, it's, it's got some potential, but it, it's it's not quite there yet i i do i must admit i thought that the fact that they gave points down to eighth place in the sprint makes it a little bit more interesting because i mean we saw it last year i mean we'd see what four or five races of, or laps of racing and then everybody kind of went into protect the car and don't kill the car before the the big race on sunday exactly and i thought this was a little bit better so you know i still like the traditional q1 2 and q2 and then the the, the top 10 shootout in q3 but you know i'm i'm just, i'm i'm kind of fence sitting now but um 
Yeah, it, it's it's not like I, I let's just say that I'm not making time out of my day to specifically go watch the sprint race just yet. I like to see like who is the fastest driver and qualifying for me is obviously what proves it. And the racing is you're not necessarily seeing the fastest driver, right? Like you're just seeing the best racer. I like to see like who is the fastest, who can take the car put it on the limit and leave it there for a full lap, like have the guts to finish it out and piece together like an incredible lap. So for me, like on a Saturday, sometimes, well, up until this weekend, these sprint races for me have been very watered down, boring, haven't really enjoyed them that much. I, I did. However, I liked Saturday sprint race Mm -hmm. and I would say they need to extend it by maybe five more laps just so they can get enough of the tire drop off. Like you guys know what I mean? Like, yeah. Cause I think if you're yeah. going to get, yeah. Cause you know, you're only going to, the, the soft tire actually didn't really drop off. Like a lot of teams that I spoke with at the end, they felt that the soft tire was going to degrade quicker. And that's why, like a Kevin Magnuson went on the medium compound because they thought that there was going to be a significant drop off around 10 laps to go. Uh, but it didn't, it didn't drop off at all. So I think if they could try and find a way of maybe extending it like five laps, 10 laps, then maybe you're going to get a bit more of that tire drop off. And then it would kind of remind me of like an F2 like sprint race. Yeah. Then you get Alex Albon saying, bring it on, boys, because, you know, he did get the nickname, the tire whisperer after <laughs> Australia. But that, that is a great point, Tim. I love it. You know, make it a little bit longer and throw that uh, that 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 added element of tire management into it. You know, we, we don't need to get as silly as having like special sprint qualifying tires that uh, have a different sort of like, uh, you know, engineering and, and tire dig mm-hmm. into them that they start to degrade after 15 laps or, or whatever. But I mean, yeah, throw another five or 10 laps, whatever it is. Maybe don't so don't go as crazy as say fifty percent race distance, but 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 why not? I mean, what do we have this weekend? Was it like twenty three laps or twenty four laps or something like that in the sprint race? Yeah, yeah. It was is up around there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you could like push it to like thirty, thirty, like, yeah, right, right. Depending on the distance of the track, obviously, yeah. right. So, but I, I would say you would want to try and aim for some heavy, heavy degradation, and maybe they will do that. Like moving forward, now that they're starting to learn these tires a little bit better, because these tires are still a mystery, eh? Like the the teams still haven't really figured them out. And so, you know, that's going to throw a wrinkle into things as we start to kind of get moving through this season. I like the fact that they only offer up three sprint races for uh, the season. Cause then it kind of, it spreads, it can spread it out different years. Right. So like maybe next year, they do one in Australia. They do one in Canada. They do one in Abu Dhabi at the end of the season, maybe to spice things up even more, right? So maybe something like that is is fine. But Ross Braun on the weekend was talking about having six for next year, guys. Six. Yeah, that, that seems like a way too much, you know. I might be going a little bit too far by saying that uh, th- that six would be too much of a good thing because I don't know if we're at the good thing just yet. But I, I think this is probably one of the better ones that we saw. I mean, definitely Charles and Max gave us a spectacle. I mean, we've seen some great racing between these two guys mm-hmm. through the first uh, right. several races of the year. And that, that sprint race was that was great watching it, uh, especially how Max uh, threw it up the, the inside there to 
take that uh, win in the sprint race away from Charles on home Ferrari soil. So that that was fun. But yeah, six that guys that just seems like way too much for me at this, this and, point in time. And let's just be crystal clear: the motivation for six sprint races is, and I get it, right? Like Liberty's objective here is to monetize and extract as much value from F1 as they can. I think F1 realizes that 24, 25 races are probably the absolute maximum that you could grind out on an F1 calendar. So if they have the opportunity to drive up the value of an existing race weekend, make the tickets a little bit more expensive and then sell. And really, this is what it's all about. It's about selling the TV network partners on the fact that, hey, on these three, four, five, six race weekends a year, you're going to have a qualifying session and you're going to have a sprint race because presumably that's going to bring more eyeballs to the TV. So I think for F1, it's less about competitive spirit and spicing up the championship. It is really just about driving some incremental revenue, which is totally fine because mm. that's why Liberty bought F1 to start with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sure. yeah, I agree with you on that for sure. Um, okay, moving over to the race. I mean, at the start, obviously, it was a bit of a wet Grand Prix, uh, cold track, and you got that kind of mix of drying track, damp track, and... You know, before the race even started, they're predicting rain about 10 laps in. It never ended up coming through. I wish it kind of did because this race was a little bit of snooze fest until the end. Mm -hmm. But regardless, Ferrari, horrible weekend, guys. Just absolutely <laughs> horrible for Carlos Sainz. And like, oh boy, I, I feel so bad for Carlos Sainz, guys. Like, I, uh, you know, last time we were talking about this, we were talking about um, him getting beached and how there should be like a no sort of beach rule if the if the car isn't destroyed. And again, Carlos Sainz gets beached. The car is fine. And that's the end of his race. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny one, right? Because... Much like yourself, I feel so bad for Carlos Sainz. And I think, when did I text you guys like over the weekend in, the, in our group chat that Carlos needs to finish this love affair that he has with gravel traps? And then, you know, lo and behold, he ends up in there again on Sunday. But I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think that discussion is still valid, but I think we just have to remove Carlos Sainz from that discussion because that would today that the incident he had with Ricardo, Ricardo gets up a little bit on the curbs. You see, he drifts into Carlos. It was just bad luck. I, I mean, that that's really what it was. It was a racing incident. Danny, you know, it, it, there was no malice in it. And Carlos was just in the wrong place at the wrong time in a very congested part, part of the track on the opening lap. And it just, uh, you know, it's that that's old thing, you know, that that old saying that, you know, whatever it is, I can't remember, but some, something, the fact that, you know, when things are bad, they just keep staying bad, right? He's just in, in a funk right now. And you, know, you just can't let it bother you because things have got to turn around at some point. Snowball, you and I took so much heat that last podcast that we did with Tim coming out of Australia because of the amount of alleged slander we directed towards Carlos Sainz that we there actually no had to address slander. it. We, we were super positive. So we actually yeah, had to address had a it on a weekend. subsequent podcast. He did. He, he did. absolutely did. Yeah. And this is where my criticism comes in here that, you know, Daniel Ricardo in the post-race interviews, he was very, very, very regretful and effectively acknowledged that that was his mistake. It was a racing incident, but he was at fault. He cut the corner. He 
hit the curb. He, yeah. His car was rotated into contact with Carlos. Totally get it. But again, Carlos, if you qualify better, if you perform better in the sprint and you have a better jump at the green light, you shouldn't have been in the middle of the pack to have that contact. So again, I'm critical of Carlos. And of course, it comes on the back of the news three days ago, four days ago, that he signed that whopping two-year extension with Ferrari and speculation had been that it was going to be a million or a one-year contract. It's he must feel terrible right now, and he must be absolutely wearing it because his performance here and his performance in Australia, which was his fault, that was entirely driver error, have now significantly reduced that gap between Ferrari and Red Bull in the drivers' championship. Because all of a sudden, and we'll get to this, Red Bull showing a lot more reliability after oh, yeah. one race than they had after the yeah. first three. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, definitely it was Carlos Sainz's fault on Friday and qualifying. He absolutely bend it. Like it's definitely yeah. on him. There's no question yeah. about it. But moving forward, I mean, if he qualifies better, Hammy, you make a great point. So we can use two drivers for this point. You can use Carlos Sainz. You can use Lance Stroll. So Carlos bins the car, right? He starts further back in the sprint race. He's got to make up, try to make up some positions so he can get a better grid start for the following race. Now, if he had have qualified better, he would have started the sprint in a better position, and he would have probably finished the sprint also in a better position, putting him out of the danger zone. And the danger zone, I like to call the midfield, because that is where the most right. desperate drivers live, right? They need to live there, and they're trying to get themselves out of that desperation zone. Lance Stroll is another example. If you go into uh, Q2, so the red flag that came out in Q2 before it started to rain. So Lance had made a mistake on his first push lap, I believe it was. And then there was a stoppage. And then before he could come back out, it started to rain. And at that point, I believe he was already qualified 15th. Sebastian Vettel, however, was in to already in to Q3. So Lance had the same pace, if not more pace than Sebastian Vettel did. Lance finished 10th in the race. If he had have qualified better, he would have done the sprint race better, and he also probably would have finished higher in the Grand Prix and away from sort of that danger zone, I like to call it. Yeah. But this is kind of how a full Grand Prix weekend sort of works out. And for Carlos Sainz, that's a big mistake because it ruins your entire weekend. Yeah, absolutely it, it, ruined. It snowballed from there, right? And I mean, again, and I mean, we'll, we'll talk about what happened with Charles at the end of the race there, but he still had really good race pace. Maybe he wasn't quite a match for the Red Bulls again uh, to, or th this afternoon, but I mean, the, the Ferrari is competitive. And, and I think that was the whole discussion that we had a couple of weeks ago is that th this is a fast car. It's a good car. It's one of the best cars that we've seen in 2022 so far. And the issue that we had was Carlos is like, well, you know, I think I've got what it takes to be number one. I think I can be better than Charles. And, and my, whole, my, my whole stance on that is like, okay, prove it. I mean, if you're going to you know, talk the talk, you got to walk the walk. And so far he's, he's not delivered that i like carlos Sainz a lot Same. i think he's super talented i think he's just as talented as charlotte claire and i might catch some hell for saying that but i think he i, I think he really is i actually think carlos Sainz is an extremely talented driver and i think at the moment he's caught in that position of like i finally have a car that's capable of winning races maybe even a championship and this thing is spiraling out of control and mm -hmm. it's going downhill from here. And that's a horrible position to be in as a racing driver 
because it just keeps it just keeps getting worse. That snowball that you know you talk about daily just it keeps getting worse and worse when you start going down this down this direction. So Miami is going to be a huge race for him, and totally. I think if I I think if he can't capture a quality result, this could this could be a really tough season for Carlos Sainz. The other consideration, I, I want to be on the record here as well, that I, like Tim, think Carlos Science is an incredibly talented driver. But the other consideration here, and this is what's going to make it tough for him, we're four races in. He's put in half as much race distance as almost anyone else on the grid. He's put in a total of one lap in the last two Grand Prix over the last month. So by the time we get to Miami in the last five weeks, you'll have completed what one and a half Grand Prix laps. Like yeah. that's a disadvantage because he's not familiar with that car. We're talking about a completely new set of regulations. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know the tires and every single week it gets worse and worse and worse. And he's getting farther and farther behind the mark simply because he has less experience with this car and the Sims great, but the Sim cannot tell you what he needs to know about these new cars. Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry, Tim, that, that maybe he needs to do like what uh, what Max did a couple of years ago after he had that accident uh, at Monaco in Q3, he ends up qualifying from the back of the grid. He took like a, a bit of time away and then he comes to Canada a couple of weeks later without his entourage. And I, I'm not suggesting that like Carlos has like a ton of distractions going on. I just think that he needs to take this opportunity now just to get into the right headspace. So I don't, he needs to take, I mean, he's, he's got to be professional. He's got to do what he needs to do as a driver and as a teammate. And one of the, you know, the, the most important people at Scuderia Ferrari but he also at the same time for me he needs to get dialed back in because like you say I mean if he has a bad race in a couple of weeks in Miami then he could be fighting it the rest of the way and it's so tantalizing I mean if you're a Ferrari fan you're looking at that lineup of Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc you think man if these guys could get it figured out this could be such like a lethal one-two punch that they have with those drivers and perhaps maybe that's just what it is to a certain extent that 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 Carlos even though this is his second year with Ferrari maybe the the pressure now that last Last year, there was no pressure because there was no expectations because everybody just kind of just felt that this wasn't going to be their year. I mean, they've been really downplaying the, you know, their expectations in the media and they're, yeah, we're not going to be competitive till 22, maybe 23. So they really didn't have to do anything but get in the car, go out there, put miles on uh, around these tracks, score points where you can score points. But now this year is different. We get to Bahrain and they, like a month and a half ago, whatever it was, and everybody's just like, oh my God, this car is legit. This car looks good. This this car could very well be a title contender. And maybe now this is a you know, completely different ballgame for Carlos. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. 
Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Yeah, I think he is at the point where the learning that learning curve is going to have to take a really steep and quick, you know, trajectory upwards because he's going to be like the saying goes drinking through a fire hose for the next few <laughs> races. There's going to be so much information coming at him that he's going to have to take in. And you start to go to certain tracks that you've never been to. So we go to Miami next, never been there before. Oh, good call, good a lot call. more information coming at you. You still don't really know the car. So there's walls. It's almost a, it's pretty much a street track. So you can't make mistakes. Like you, you can't push the car to the limit. You know, if you see some of the drivers that are still uncomfortable with the cars, they're, they're that way because they can't push the cars to the limit with the tracks that we've been to Saudi Arabia covered in walls, Australia covered in walls. Imola, you make one mistake there, you're in the wall. Miami, walls. There's nowhere for these drivers to actually start to learn what the limit of the car actually is. And Carlos is probably riding that line of still not really knowing. I mean, that crash and qualifying is, I mean, it's a, I mean, come on, right? So it's, he's, he's up against it for sure. Um, but, that's why I rate him very highly, and I think mm-hmm. he's going to be able to get the hang of this. I hope he does, because I'd like to see him succeed, that's for sure. Yep. Uh, another Ferrari driver who also had a terrible race on Sunday, Charles Leclerc. Now, guys, Leclerc has been known to make mistakes in high-pressure situations, and on lap 54, this is a big one. You're on soft tires. You're getting. I was following on the um, on his onboard camera for most of the race, and once he had pitted and come out on the soft tire, I I watched those laps very closely to see you know just how much he was attacking, and that gave me a sense of if he was going to get Sergio or not. And he was. He was catching. He was bringing him in. He was hunting him down. And as a racing driver, you always like to be hunting, right? You always want to be putting the pressure on the competition, you don't want to be the one receiving it because a lot of the drivers aren't good at receiving the the pressure, right? So he's pushing that braking zone, uh, heading up into um, uh, Variante Alta. Is that how you pronounce it? I'm the worst. Variante Alta. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Got to work on my Italian. (laughs) So he's pushing that braking zone though, right? And every single lap, he keeps pushing and pushing and pushing until Mm -hmm. finally he, he pushes it as far as I think you can. He takes way too much of that sausage curb and into the wall. Interesting note on that one though. He actually was getting a radio message as he was entering that braking zone. So it might've thrown his concentration off just a just a tiny tiny bit the mm. problem is okay. like you guys know right you get a little bit of air underneath these cars and it's, it's game over right and, and you're into the wall i mean it's just it's a little bit of a das- disaster and then you let max verstappen take a huge chunk 
out of your championship lead. Oh my god! I mean, if if you look now at the the world cha- or drivers championship, you got Charles on eighty six, Max on fifty nine, Sergio with fifty four, George with forty nine, and Carlos, who's looking so good at the beginning of the season. I mean, he's already fifth in the world championship now, or is he sixth now? I mean, he's got thirty eight points. I mean, he's only a couple of points ahead of Lando, which you know, no disrespect to Lando, but I mean that that's a great place for Lando to be uh, considering. I mean, he is just as sort of outside of like those big teams, and considering the start them. McLaren had they they were pretty cold to start 2022 right and then if you look at the constructors Ferrari I mean they were almost a country mile ahead of everybody coming into Imola this weekend now Ferrari they've had their their lead slashed to almost nothing they got 124 points they're only 11 points ahead of Red Bull have got 113 Mercedes didn't really score that many points uh, today I mean they, they got a you know, a nice little handful from from George who ended up uh, finishing fourth they got 77 and the McLaren with uh, with 46 but I mean wow how did that turn around in a hurry I mean Max I mean he was he had to have a good race eventually, right? I mean, he had some. He's had some bad luck this season. The Red Bull was. It looked like it was made out of glass there. I mean, with the reliability problems. But I mean, talk about a weekend to come back and 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 have a perfect weekend. But I'm going to put it to you, and I can see the wheels turning around in Hammy's head here because. And I'm going to throw this question to him, and then Tim, you know, you, you you jump in here too. Did they really need to pit Charles at that point? They said that they were going to keep him out till the end of the race. To me, my own personal two cents is they didn't need to do it to try and secure that single point for the fastest lap, especially at this point in the season. It just, it seems, it seems so unnecessary. Yeah, I completely agree. And to me, what was more atrocious or egregious than even, even Leclerc's mistake, I get it. He's on the soft. He just came out. He doesn't have optimal temperature. He makes a mistake, hits the curb, goes into a spin. He seemed to be able to recover and the damage seemed to be minimal, except for maybe a little bit of damage to the end plate on the front wing. What was egregious was the fact that Ferrari wouldn't leave him out for a full lap to get a sense of whether there was any damage. The fact that they automatically pitted him and in doing so effectively wrecked whatever opportunity he had to get back into to the battle for second place. I, I thought that was more egregious than even the error, to be totally honest. But I think that's a great question. And Tim, I was going to pose the same question to you. What was your thought? Was that the right move? Maybe they, maybe Ferrari had some data or some intel that we didn't know. But after the race, Nico Rosberg himself was incredibly critical of Ferrari saying the exact same thing, that they couldn't possibly have known if there was any damage because they didn't leave him out long enough to accumulate it from the sensors. Mm-hmm. There Actually, there was a bit of damage uh, to the wing. See, the thing is when... And you have to think of safety at this point with these front wings, right, guys? Because as soon as you kind of get like a tiny bit of damage to it, you really do need to pit the driver because let's say, you know, and Nico's probably not thinking about this, which he probably should be. You're heading down to, you know, the Villeneuve chicane and that front wing decides to come off. Well, we all know where it goes, right, guys? It goes right Right. underneath the car. Yeah. As soon as it goes underneath the car, you're a passenger and he's heading head first at almost 300 kilometers an hour into a wall. So, I mean, you gotta, I think like that it's a wall with a history, team, we, which we should mention, ex- right? Exactly. So you have to like keep, I think the team did the right move and bringing him in from my, from my point of view, I would say, you know, good for them for bringing him in on the safety side of things. Um, they, probably already calculated where he was going to end up finishing for bringing him in anyways. So like they would have known, but I think from my standpoint, I I would say, you know, it's a good, good move on Ferrari to bring him in just in case, right? Like Mm -hmm. 
Because because next thing you know, let's say that you know it's not a devastating crash or something. You still crashes out of the race, and you still don't get any points at all. And now that championship bite right. that Max takes right. out of you is even is even bigger. So I don't know. I think they kind of played the right move on that one. Hey, did you guys know that Max is the first driver to win qualifying sprint race, the Grand Prix, and take fastest lap in the same weekend? This stat comes to you from Mr. Mark Hamilton. Courtesy and via Reddit. So I will give full credit <laughs> where it is due. <laughs> what a, and I think this is the perfect segue. Like we talk about the fact that Ferrari had a tough weekend, despite the fact that it was at home and the Tafosi were out and the crowd looks absolutely ecstatic and enthusiastic to Red Bull. And all of a sudden, all of the things that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, which was, hey, Sergio looks good, but does he look great? And the reliability issues and the problems they were having with the fuel cell, which aren't even parts that they build, but they have to buy from an FIA sanctioned supplier. All of a sudden, they looked great. The reliability was there and the pace was just phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that, that to me is like the, the the really interesting bit is, I mean, Ferrari looked so good over those first uh, couple of races, but now is that maybe a little bit of a false positive? Because, you know, we, we saw how they had the double DNF for Red Bull and Bahrain and then Max had some problems, you know, afterwards. So, I mean, he, so, I mean, the, the way that Max is going this year, that if he finishes a race, he's going to win, you know, based on the two races that he finished this year. I mean, obviously, I'm being a little bit kind of... Statistically. Silly, st- statistically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, wh- what a way to turn it around. And all eyes are going to be on them now because, I mean, certainly all the, I guess, all the headlines have been for Ferrari over the first month and bit of the season. But I think that this has to be a real serious shot across the bow from Red Bull. It's just like, hey, you know, ignore us to your own peril because we're here and we've got to good car and uh, you know we, we got a couple of good drivers i mean checko i mean well did they say today that this was like their first one two finish for red bull since 2016 or something that seemed yeah. like a bit of a mind blower i, I thought that they had some and i thought they must have had one in or or but in 2017 or 2018 up until danny ricardo left i was surprised it'd been that long but still I mean, the car looks good now. If they can sort out those reliability problems with, like uh, Mark said, with some of these uh, parts that, they, that are, they're mandated to buy from FIA-sanctioned uh, suppliers, then, yeah, I just don't know how you can ignore them. And, and, and Max, I think, I mean, he's, he's obviously confident in his, uh, in, his own, <clears throat> in his own talents, his own skills. But he said, uh, even I think, of, I can't remember if it was, at, maybe it was after Australia, but he said, you know, I'm not even really thinking about the championship right now. I'm just, yeah, it was. Yeah, I'm just mm-hmm. more concerned about getting this thing across the, the, the finish line at the end of the race. But, I mean, after today, you got to think that the confidence has got to be there for, for Red Bull. Yeah, yeah and also bringing some upgrades to the car. And that in itself is is huge, right? Because at the end of the day, this could end up turning into like a development war. And I think Ferrari is is betting on that uh, for sure. But for Red Bull to have an upgrade already available for this race weekend and for it to have worked and provided just a tiny bit of extra pace. I mean, that's got to be that's a huge feather in your cap, Hammy, if you're Red Bull. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if there was any pressure on the Milton Keynes squad, it certainly dissipated after this weekend. The other stat that uh, I saw on Reddit this weekend was that they collected a a whopping 58 
points this weekend. So you talk about taking a big chunk out of Ferrari and Ferrari had built that monumental lead. And now the gap's 10 points, give or take that's effectively even. So after four races, they're almost back to square one at this point. And all of a sudden, if you factor in the struggles that Carlos has had, the fact that he's got inexperience in that car. And all of a sudden, the fact that these Red Bull upgrades are fueling this massive improvement in pace, you have to think that Red Bull is now suddenly the, the favorite to, to kind of tear away with this championship. And I think that was the other piece too, was again, it looked a little like it was going to be a good weekend for Ferrari really until you get to the first lap of the race, Mm -hmm. but that pace and the Delta that Max put up between the rest of the field and that Sergio had between him and Lando in third place was just, was just incredible. And if I'm Ferrari now, I'm panicking because I got to know where my upgrades are in the pipeline. If I've got any meaningful upgrades coming at all, the other thought too, and I should have added this earlier, uh, in that crash that Carlos had in qualifying, one of the things that probably wasn't reported as much as it should have been is when that car was being lifted off the track, photographers got a oh. really good look at the floor of that car. Mm. Do not think that every factory in Formula One yeah. is going over those photos in fine mm-hmm. detail this week because if that's been their advantage, well, their IP is now public knowledge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's, that's a, a great point. point. Yeah. yeah, that's a great point, man. Because like you can bet whoever took that photograph is just making money <laughs> after that one. Because I bet you a hundred bucks. There's a ton of teams out there paying that guy top quality oh, yeah. dollars for those images, 100. Because you guys know as well as I do, those photographers, you know, they're there to take nice little pictures, maybe for getting <laughs> images or whatever. We all know who the <laughs> they're making the real, the real money customers off, right? are. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, another team, yeah. another team making a, like a really great turnaround uh, this weekend is, you know, McLaren um, Daly. Did you honestly, after Bahrain, did you ever expect that they could come back like this? Not this quickly. I, I was uh, actually after the first race of the season, I was really quite worried for them because I mean, Ever since they they switched first away from Honda, then to Renault, and then to Mercedes, I mean, they've been trending upwards. And I I know they faded towards the the end of last year, but I mean, the overall trend for the past several years has been positive for them. I mean, they're they're good for the occasional podium. And uh, we we saw Ricardo, of course, winning last year at Monza. But then when when we get to Bahrain at the the start of the season, and they look like they were light years behind everyone else, I'm just like, oh my God, out of every Everyone that got it right and who didn't get it right, it looks like McLaren is not just, they, they're not hot. They're just completely ice cold, but they've turned it around. And it was just, it was unfortunate what happened to Ricardo because, I mean, he was, his day was over. Just, uh, I mean, Carlos ended up going back to the, to, to the pits and sitting in the garage. I mean, Ricardo effectively did the same thing, even though he was still driving around in the car. I mean, he just uh, wasn't able to, to get back into a meaningful position in the race order, but you look at Lando, he, well, I mean, they both qualified well, right? They had a decent sprint race. And then Lando, mm-hmm. it was just, it's kind of funny sometimes how the law of averages work out because he was pretty anonymous during the race. He was just kind of like all off by himself, just minding his own business. And then, uh, you know, Charles has this uh, th- this moment and then all of a sudden he's dropping like a stone falling through the race order, through the running order. And then Lando ends up uh, P3. I mean, I-, I loved it at the end of the race when you hear like some of the radio transmissions. I mean, you hear Lando. I mean, he's always excited when uh, whenever he gets a good uh, result. But uh, today it, w- it was wonderful uh, to see. But it was good for them. I think that's, uh, I-, I think for anything, I think the confidence booster that it gives them, especially after that rough, you know, 
start to the season. I think it, it just uh, maybe gives them some some proof that hey, you know what? Let's just follow the process. We, we've got the basis of a good car here. Let's just keep pushing, and hopefully more good things uh, will happen. But just generally, they look good. It's all about the process, you. eh, Hammy? Yeah, I completely agree. And maybe not the Philadelphia 76ers <laughs> process. Although for you and I as Raptors fans, that's a bit of a pointed comment. But I, I, I take us back to the race classification from Bahrain. I was just pulling this up in the background here. Uh, you've got Daniel finishing 14th in that race, Lando finishing 15th, and they finished 55 and 50 second, 56 seconds back each respectively. They were, they were almost lapped in that race. It was absolutely absurd how, how distant they were. But it also speaks to the fact that we knew that there were going to be some teams that came out of the gate this year and they were going to struggle. But we also have to know that a lot of these teams have probably identified those deficiencies during winter testing. And it's probably going to take them to Tim, you know, better than anyone, two, four, yeah. six, eight weeks to get those parts developed, get mm-hmm. them through the wind tunnel, get them into production and then get them to a Grand Prix. So I think a lot of the issues that teams like McLaren may have encountered the first couple of races were known. It just takes some time to develop the parts to overcome those issues. And clearly that's now coming to fruition for a team like McLaren. And then the thing that benefits a team like McLaren as well is it's not a 17 race season like it was in 2020. It's a 23 race calendar. We keep saying this. It is a marathon or marathon not a sprint this year, but it was certainly good to see Lando finish on the podium. And nowhere was that better than to be able to see it in real time with the cool down room back. We we reported yes. on our show. We, reported, <laughs> we talked about the fact that F2 was bringing the cool down room back, but it was so great to see the two Red Bull drivers 100%. and Lando see their personality shine yeah. in front of that big screen as they were watching clips of the race. And even better was Crofty <laughs> like, ap- apologizing for Max's language afterwards. <laughs> and Sergio's. And Sergio's too. Yeah. Sergio was swearing too. It was great. Um, you made some really good points, Hammy, about uh, the development because if we look at it this way, right? I mean, they were so far off in Bahrain that like, I thought they were going to be one of, if not the worst team on the grid for most of this season like that's how bad it was and yes obviously they were having a ton of brake issues and they finally got that solved and got the proper brake ducts put onto their car uh but you know that's still not all of what it was right they had a huge turnaround and if you think about it where you know these developments that these teams are making they're only really carving out a few percentage points of downforce which is only giving them like half of a tenth, not even a tenth of a second, that turnaround that McLaren has had and before the teams have brought their major upgrades, this is huge, guys. This is so big. This is such a big, big story for McLaren to turn this thing around as fast as they have because I honestly haven't seen a team make a turnaround this big in a very very long time because usually we don't see turnarounds until after Spain, mm-hmm. which is usually about the fifth or sixth race into the season. And that's when you see those major upgrades coming. But once a team brings a major upgrade, so does another team, right? So that gap kind of still kind of remains where McLaren has literally erased that huge gap that they had um, to the leaders of the of the midfield, which is an incredible, incredible effort. Well, especially in a cost cap era that you can't just throw money and resources and personnel at it because you, you can't do that anymore, right? 
Great yeah, point. absolutely. Great point. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and tough day also for Dana Ricardo, obviously running most of that race with damage diffuser. Uh God, it's uh it's it's tough to watch sometimes. You know, I root highly for Dana Ricardo and I put him right up there with all the other top drivers. I think he's I think he's an incredible talent, but oh my god, guys, it's ever since going to McLaren. I mean, this has been it's been kind of tough to watch at some points, right? right? Right. I mean, we were talking at the top of the show here just how like Carlos has been in a in a funk, but that's only going for maybe a couple of races. You know, Danny, if he's listening to this, which we know he probably isn't, he's probably putting his hand up. It's like Carlos, my friend. It gets all it can get a lot, lot worse because oh, yeah, it's, it's it's tough to watch, especially when it's when it's a driver that's as good and as likable as Danny Ricardo. It's as, you just can't help but feel sorry for him. You know, it's just uh, it, it's it's not fun. Hearing some of the bright spots about it between him and Lando, I mean, obviously the two drivers don't share the same driving style, but they both give the same feedback to the team. And that's extremely important because it shows that both of them can get the car on the right in the right direction. And for for Daniel, even though it's been a little a little rough to start the season here, he can quickly turn this around like Carlos Sainz, obviously, but he can really turn this around. And I think that's very positive um, news and very positive thing to know that him and Lando do share those same opinions about the car to help it move forward. Cause that means that both drivers are going to be able to extract the performance out of it. So I'm going to be, uh, it's going to be fun to see Daniel coming to Miami. I mean, he's going to be bringing that <laughs> big time energy and <laughs> all of the other great things, but I, I think he's. Uh, I think from the uh, after Miami, I think we're going to see some good stuff from from Ricardo for sure. Um, Lewis Hamilton, guys, it's been Oof. it's it's been tough. Uh, another driver yeah. just just having a rough one and being outperformed by his teammate um, George Russell, who we'll talk about in a second. But I want to talk about Lewis first off the top because that radio message from Toto Wolf to Lewis. I mean, God, it was that was tough to that was tough to hear. Uh, I mean, looking at what had went down on Friday when the two of them were having a discussion in the in the garage, um, it it just sometimes you start to wonder if the fracture, fractures are starting to show through because these guys are just such fierce competitors. Yeah, especially for a team where they, they've had so much go their way for so long. And I mean, it, obviously, it's not luck. I mean, they, they worked extremely hard and they did so many things right. But I mean, this year, it, it's just uh, it's unheard of. I mean, I was I thought I was living in the twilight zone there when I was watching Lewis Hamilton get lapped by Max Verstappen. And Lewis was running what? I mean, he's, I think he finished, well, he's 14. So I guess he was 14th. He ended up finishing. When he got lapped, right? Yeah. He's, he finished uh, 13th with Esteban Ocon's five seconds. Oh, with the penalty. penalty. Right. Yeah. Of course, yeah. for that uh, unsafe release in the pits, which was ridiculous uh, in of, uh, of itself. But yeah, that was just uh, kind of crazy. And we were sitting there watching the race. And I think it was about the same time when uh, they they had uh, they were talking with Nico Rosberg there. And my wife made the comment. Uh, she said, uh, well, do you think that Nico's sitting there smirking or laughing and enjoying watching uh, Hamilton getting uh, lapped by uh, Max Verstappen? I'm like, well, who, who knows? But uh, I mean, certainly, I mean, who would have thought that we'd see Lewis struggling just to get him, you know, get this car working for him? Because... 
I mean, George finishes P4 after that's uh, all, all that. But I mean, he outqualified Lewis again. And it's just, uh, I mean, it's just not working for Lewis Hamilton on any level. And I just cannot get my mind around that. I mean, out of out of all these drivers in Formula One, I don't like expect to see Lewis Hamilton struggling. I mean, not, I mean, everybody has an off weekend. I mean, that that's just expected. I mean, even the great drivers, even drivers like Lewis Hamilton have a bad, bad day at the office, but it's been a bad month and a half at the office and it doesn't look like it's going to get better anytime soon. I'll read, I'll read that Toto comment that Tim just alluded to. And this came on the radio um, shortly after the race concluded. But Toto said, Lewis, hi. Sorry for what you had needed to drive today being a car. I know it's undrivable and not what we deserve to score as a result. This was a terrible race. I think, I think if you look at Lewis's experiences so far in isolation, maybe, maybe honestly, you can chalk it up to the fact that it's an underdeveloped car. And last year in a cost cap environment, they committed too many of their resources to developing the 2021 car. But you can't look at this in isolation because you can't not compare what Lewis is doing versus his teammate. And we'll get there in a couple of seconds. But again, this is a matter of creating opportunities and you create opportunity by qualifying well you create opportunities by getting a great jump and you create opportunities by not getting stuck behind a drs train which is exactly what happened to lewis today and you know he finished p13 after that five second penalty to Ocon. but the reality is if he'd had a better jump or if he qualified better or if he would had a better sprint race any one of those things could have put him in a position where he wasn't chasing ghastly for 25 laps it's just a lot of these are self-inflicted and i get it the car's not not perfect, but if you look at George Russell, and we'll talk about him in a couple of minutes, I, I just it's very, very strange that you've got one driver that is extracting so much value from that car and one driver who is not, and yet the team principal is apologizing to him publicly for the car that he's been given. Very strange circumstances indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Yeah, I mean, talked to Total Wolf on Saturday after the um, after the sprint race, and you know, just questioning him a bit more about the car and you know where they're kind of at, and you know, they're exploring you know some concepts on on this car that you know could allow them to unlock the potential on the race car itself, and they have upgrades coming, you know, that they hope will solve um, their issues, which are porpoising a high amount of drag and a ton of lack of grip. And if it doesn't solve the issues, you know, then, then Mercedes will, will cut their losses. And I think it starts with the porpoising and then the porpoising creates this chain reaction with the race car itself. Because once you get 
you know, porpoising, then you have to worry about the tire. Then you also have to worry about the amount of downforce you're running because of the porpoising and then because of the tire, because you have to heat the tire and how do you get more heat into the tires with more downforce? So it just, it kind of creates all these different sort of chain reactions. And this is something that was, um, a phenomenon to them and they were totally caught out by it because in their, uh, in their wind tunnel, they didn't see it and they didn't expect it. And they had no clue that this was, that this was coming. And so I think for, for them, it's kind of like the question is where is the, where's the baseline for cutting your losses, right? Do you, do you keep moving forward to unlock the potential I mean, Total Wolf said it's a bit of a tricky exercise in that they needed to continue to explore what the science is. And he kept leaning into that, you know, what is the science? What is the science behind this? What is the science behind that? Because what I think they'll end up doing is if, let's say, the new set of upgrades that, let's say, they bring for Spain, if that doesn't work, I think what they end up doing is blowing their entire budget on trying to figure out this car get the porpoising under control with an aim for 2023 Mm. that's what i think that that, that's fascinating but the you know the the issue that i kind of struggle with is that okay the the car obviously has issues they obviously need to do something about it but there's such a big difference between what charles or sorry not charles what what george is doing with the car compared to lewis yes yes and i would have like i wouldn't have been surprised that one of these two guys might have struggled with this car but I wouldn't have expected it to be Lewis Hamilton, who's been with the team forever, and uh, and and not the first year driver that in in George Russell. So speaking with George after the race itself, you know, he brought up a really good point where, and he wasn't trying to compare, you know, what he had to what Lewis had in the past. You know, he was comparing him himself as a driver to what he had to drive in the past. So driving the Williams car, for example, that's a really difficult race car. To, to drive. I mean, you asked Nicholas Satifi just how difficult that Williams car was to extract the lap time from, and he'll tell you. And same with George. George says they both said the exact same thing. So that Williams car for the past, whatever it was, three seasons that George was in it, right? He was handed a, a very like difficult, difficult car to extract a lap time out of. So as a racing driver, you kind of get used to that, right? You have to develop different, a different skill set. You got to figure out and you got to change your driving style and you got to figure out how to extract the lap time um, from the race car, how to get the tires to work. So he's used to dealing with very, very, very difficult situations and being able to adapt his driving style uh, around that. I think that plays a bit of a role here. And I'm not saying that that makes George better than Lewis. Lewis is a seven-time Formula One world champion for a reason. What I'm saying is, is that that gives that gives George a particular skill set that maybe Lewis hasn't had a chance yet to really dive into. But that doesn't mean that he's not going to get it. But at the end of the day, as well, and you add on top of this, is that that Mercedes car is very difficult to get the tires into the sweet spot where they actually work. And I think for some of these races, that's what George has been able to do. He's been able to activate the tire. Um, he's been able to get the performance out of the tire. And I think Lewis is just missing that window of where the sweet spot is with this race car. That's perfect. 
No, <laughs> long, awkward silence. No, I, like, I, I think I was honestly processing what you were saying because to me, I've really struggled to understand that delta, the delta that I kept alluding to, which is, look, you know, Toto's coming out and he's acknowledging that the car is fundamentally flawed. He is apologizing to Lewis Hamilton on the radio, knowing that the whole world is going to hear that. And yet George Russell is quietly putting in some stellar performance and collecting points. He finished fourth today. And, you know, a couple of things breaking different directions. He could have been fighting for a podium. And there's always going to be what ifs, but he would put himself in a position where he could have been competing for a podium. So I think, Tim, this kind of speaks to what you said a couple of minutes ago, about the fact that when he was with Williams, he was doing an exceptionally good job of extracting value a car that had little or no value to offer. And I think his his way of driving seems to have uh, transitioned over to Mercedes, which again, the car is difficult, but he seems to be able to find a way to work the tires, get the tires into the correct operating t- temperature and extract as much value. But I just, I just have to wonder that if the car's broken and he's still scoring top four, top five finishes consistently, what is this car and what is George Russell capable of if the car is improved, if they get the porpoising under under control, if they reduce some of that unintended drag, what is he capable of doing as a driver? Well, also don't don't forget, right? George is actually kind of gifted that fourth place, right? Like that's not yeah, like totally. a true yeah. that's not a true fourth place. For, for sure, for sure. And so really we're only talking about a gap to Lewis and George. It's not very big. I mean, four or five tenths, maybe. Like, right. Like we're not, we're not talking a huge gap here to both of these drivers. And I think if you look at the very first race of the season, you know, Lewis was able to get the car into that sort of sweet spot. But then once he got the free practice three in Saudi Arabia, he had a really good thing going with the race car. So if you go back and you look at free practice one, two, and three at the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, you know, those were very positive sessions for him. I think he went a little bit too far on the conservative side with the setup heading into the qualifying. But what he did with that was he set that car up more for a race because of how uncomfortable it felt, right? And he didn't want to, I don't think he really wanted to run a full race distance being that uncomfortable in a race car where George was able to find a a finest setup that worked with his his driving style that allowed him to unlock, unlock the tire and to be a little bit comfortable within the race car. And let's be honest, you know, as a racing driver, you're never going to be 100% comfortable in a race car. You're always going to be stressed and on the edge pretty much all the time. You want to try and just minimize the amount of uh, uncomfortable, very uncomfortable situations that you go through. Um, you know, talking to Lewis again, like on, on Saturday, you know, he's, it, for the race car, he, I don't think he, he doesn't, he's not sure if the concept is flawed. And he said, it's very difficult to just write the car and the season off at, at the moment. You know, he went on to allude that he's got another year left on his contracts. Um, and he's like a hundred percent committed to the team because a reporter had asked him like, Hey, look, if this season, if you continue to struggle, do you look at another team? Do you decide, hey, I'm going to go somewhere else, right? But he he alluded to the fact that this is a team that, you know, they've shared a lot of ups and downs with, and they've shared a lot of incredible moments winning all those championships uh, together, and he's going to ride it out uh, with them. Worst case scenario, he said they'll rectify it for next year. Um, 
he actually he brought up a really cool story because we got we started talking about um we started talking to him about like you know what some of the worst cars like he's ever sort of driven and he brought up like the 2009 uh, uh mclaren and he made some actually it was really interesting because he was talking about how they had perceived the 2009 regulations that they were going to be cutting downforce for 50%. So McLaren built a car for 50% less downforce. And so when they first started driving it, everyone else prepared a car with like 100% like downforce. And so they were wondering like, well, where the hell did we lose all this performance? <laughs> right? He kind of compared it to this car that he has here today. And he actually said that the 2009 car actually this car that he's driving now wasn't as bad as as the 2009 car he said but okay. what ended up solving the issues with the 2009 car was a double diffuser pretty crazy mm. eh? okay interesting interesting yeah. yeah very very interesting conversation we we have with him but um but yeah i'm i'm not i'm not totally concerned with lewis i think he's he's going to be able to kind of figure this thing out and 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 bounce back i mean he's a seven-time world champion right guys and oh, exactly totally, for sure so not not totally concerned, but yes, George did have a really good race, had a great weekend uh, in total. Another team that had a really great race, Aston Martin boys. Finally, right? It, oh, it was fantastic. promising. I mean, it's been such a difficult start to the season, especially for for, for Seb. I mean, he misses those first couple of races of the uh, the, the season because he's got COVID. He comes into Melbourne a couple of weeks ago, obviously still not in the right. You know, he, he's not where he needs to be. He struggles there, doesn't get a great result. And Lance has been kind of, you know, hitting this all season. But then... They finally get uh, get a good result. Both cars in the the, the top ten. Lance uh, ten. Seb was what ninth or sorry uh, seventh. So so good for them. And and it looked like they actually had a little bit of pace too because those first couple of uh, races of the season they looked pretty cold as well. So maybe they're finally getting getting things sorted out there as well. So I know that Lance didn't uh, he didn't obviously qualify quite as good as uh, Sebastian did, but I think finally they can walk away from from Imola and just kind of maybe. <laughs> let out a big you know like sigh of relief and maybe just kind of put some you know we'll, we'll go back to the process again here guys reference the process that uh, perhaps that uh, that things aren't quite as bad as uh, maybe they looked a co- even a couple of weeks ago if if you were writing a horror story or a horror movie for netflix you know and it was the Aston martin season the first three races were the deep dark of the night and this race here was the dawn's coming up and they look around and they realize they've survived the night and everything's going to be okay but it was very much something of a redemption drive in a sense and there's some hyperbole there for vettel because obviously his return after those two covid misses that you mentioned daily did not go well there was constant contact he didn't have control of the car he looked in control and even listening to him post race he seemed incredibly excited he seemed more optimistic and he seemed more um i would say um happy with the car and with the team that i've heard him really since maybe the beginning of last year when there was still a lot of optimism before the season got underway but i also think it was huge for lance because lance had come under tremendous criticism from the f1 press through the first three races of the season and when he came together with latifi uh prior to the race in in australia that just kind of escalated and threw fuel on the fire for the criticism that was for lance so to see the both of them finish in the points i think was fantastic and it maybe it will help bury some of the headlines 
headlines that surged at the end of last week where there's all these stories coming out of Germany that maybe Lawrence is looking to sell this team and move on from his F1 adventure. And I don't believe for a second that this guy would invest that much money into this project only to bail now. But again, there's been a lot of news around Aston Martin over the last two months and none of it's been positive. I think this is a good inflection point for the team to be able to say, look, we can score points. We can get both cars into the points. And when the circumstances are right, we can be successful. And all of that, despite the fact that it was a wet, slippery, unpredictable track this weekend. And for two cars that showed a lack of stability and balance, it was really, really, really positive to see both of the drivers simultaneously get those cars into the points. So I think it was a great news weekend for, for Aston Martin. Do we really think that Lawrence Stroll is going to spend hundreds of millions of dollars by a Formula One team, then by a car company, then buy a whole whack of land, then build a state-of-the-art factory on top of it, and then he's going to sell it to Audi. Do we really Tim, think that that's going to happen? Not on this I'm planet. not totally clear on your position here. <laughs> not totally clear here if you think he will or he won't. But no, for sure. Because, you know, if you go back last year when he was being interviewed on the Beyond the Grid podcast, he was very clear that the reason he bought the team was because he was convinced that an F1 team could have an NBA team-like valuation of billions of dollars. No F1 team is there yet, but they could be in five hmm. years. Why would he sell himself short now? I was, uh, we were talking to Total Wolf about this as well. And he said that, you know, where Formula One is at the moment, he said the value of these teams is like through the roof. And so at the end of the day for Audi, could they even afford to buy a team like Aston Martin? Right. Could they actually, right. Remember, you got, you got Dieselgate. They still are probably reeling from a bit. Right. And then on top of that, they came off of spending a load of money in Formula E. And then you're going to get Porsche involved. Right. In in uh, in Formula One. And on top of that, uh, you're going to then go and buy a a team. You're going to go buy a Formula One team, which at this point has got to be what valued at, guys. I mean, just the team itself. And we're not talking about factory lands. And then what do you do with Aston Martin at the end of the day? The road car division. Yeah. I mean, what what are we talking? Like, what are you guys thinking here? I I'm just gonna say, for the team itself, just just for the team itself, I'm thinking half a billion. Yeah, oh. that would sound about so, right. Yeah. So I I would go even higher. I would say McLaren at five to seven because you have to assume a ton mm. of debt. But I honestly think you give mm, Aston Martin a year and, and give Lawrence a little bit more time to put that factory together and fix that road car division, especially from the business side. These teams should be worth a billion dollars because let's remember, there's only 10 teams on the planet and two of those are owned by the same company so really mm-hmm. there are nine formula one teams in the world there's 30 nba teams 32 nfl teams 150 high level football teams around the world there are nine formula one teams when you cast aside that alpha towery red bull marriage yeah. yeah and i think well sorry daily go ahead i was gonna say that uh, perhaps if the whole uh, twitter thing doesn't work out maybe elon wants to take some of that 43 billion dollars and invest it in a formula one team who knows right could happen, right? Could happen. Probably <laughs> or you could go not. And buy for, or he could go and buy Formula One. Or <laughs> yeah, the buy the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, no, it was interesting. I was talking to um, Mike Crack about Sebastian Vettel, and you guys, you guys made a good point about, you know, obviously having him bounce back for this race weekend. You have to remember also, like, the guy doesn't have a ton of time in this car, and he's done a really nice job. Like, 
this past weekend. Obviously, Australia was a disaster, but Imola has been great um, for Seb. And so got me to thinking, you know, how, and I put this question to Mike and I said to him, you know, like, how important is it to keep, you know, Sebastian around for the future? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's extremely important and it helps them to keep continuity within the team. And this is one of the reasons why I really like Mike Crack and why I think he's like a very good team principal is that he's actually thinking more about not disturbing this team any more than it already has, right? Because you got yeah, I remember Force, you know, Force India was went into what uh, went into a, was it receivership? I think they call it, basically they went bankrupt. Yeah, yeah administration, administration, administration. administration. Yeah. Lawrence Stroll comes in, snaps them up. They almost lose like a ton of their folks who work within the factory, right? And then you rebrand it as Racing Point, and then you rebrand it again as Aston Martin, and then you add on top of that. I think they're at this point, they're up to almost 200 new employees from when Lawrence took it over. And on top of that, Omar Safnauer leaves, right? And so now you're getting more and more turnover inside the own kind. You're yeah. destabilizing yeah. the team as, as a whole. And so, yeah, he said that, you know, keeping Seb around is very important to help with that continuity. He really talked a lot about his work ethic too. Um in his speed experience, obviously, but brings just a lot of that added value, you know, to, to the table. How long do you guys see Seb actually racing for though? Cause it's at one point where we kind of thought that, okay, you know, this could, this could be the last year for Seb. Yeah. Well, that, that's something that I've kind of been uh, throwing around in the back of my mind for a little while here. And I think that Seb will race as long as he wants to race. And I think as long as he's got something to contribute and I've, and, and as long as he feels like he's in a place that he can make a positive contribution. I, I couldn't see Vettel walking away from, from Aston Martin just to go to somewhere else, say say like a lateral move to say Alfa Romeo, right? And, and no disrespect to them, but I, I just see him, maybe he sticks around with Aston Martin for a little while longer, or he just walks away from Formula One uh, completely. So I think as long as that situation with Aston Martin is working for him, I think he stays around. I don't think we're going to see him in Formula One for like another five or seven years, but I can maybe see maybe another year, maybe two, depending what happens. I mean, I, I think the time is ticking on his career, but that's 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 kind of where I where I'm going with it. I was going to highlight the fact that he turns 35 in this this July, right? He's certainly one of the older drivers on the grid. He's been full-time, full-time since 2008. He picked up halfway through the 2007 season with Scuderia Toro Rosso. But even at 35 years of age, Fernando Alonso has got, what, five, six, seven years on him and still mm -hmm. looks to be an incredibly capable driver in that, sure. that Renault-powered Alpine. So I think to your point, Daly, it's really as long as he's motivated to do the work required of a Formula One driver. But I also think that in the last maybe two years, he's discovered that Formula One gives him a tremendous platform for a number of social causes that he wants to to talk about that he necess wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, to promote outside of the world of Formula One. So maybe if he doesn't have a title contending car, maybe the fact that he has this platform is enough to motivate or motivate him to keep going forward forwards and some of the key issues with aston martin you know to date that they've been battling with with this car the aerodynamics have not been great and obviously the aero is extremely important uh car weight was actually another key issue with this race car that they have now is the other part of it is the car is not giving the drivers 
proper uh, feedback. So one of the things I think Aston Martin will most definitely focus on with this next round of um, upgrades is how can they provide better feedback to the driver? And by, by feedback, I mean suspension, um, steering, better feel for the car so the drivers can actually push the, the the car itself they can actually get to the limit of it and feel kind of comfortable and if you look at what happened in australia they had a ton of crash damage obviously um and the just the monumental effort that this team had to make to get new parts onto this car but still at the same time remaining to stay on track with car development because that was a key issue for this team coming into Imola was are they going to be able to keep making the upgrades for the car because of all of the crash damage that they had received in Australia? And sure enough, they were. That's incredible, man. That's absolutely incredible. This team has done such a great job of getting this car back together, extracting performance uh, from it, and still being able to maintain task of making sure the upgrades, uh, I mean, come out for it. From where they were to where they are now, it's not quite McLaren-esque, but it's it's pretty good, guys. No, but that's a great comparison that you make. And I mean, I'm, you know, I make no shame in the fact that uh, I'm a bit of a, a Zach Brown fanboy and I, I love the job that he did at McLaren. He comes in as the as the CEO and then he just quietly recruits really good people for the different jobs that they needed. And you don't really see him micromanaging what Andreas Seidel is doing or anybody else. He's just kind of letting them get 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 on with their job and and just appointing those key people. And it's interesting when when you hear like those comments, uh, you know, or some of those anecdotes you're telling us about, like uh, Mike Crack. You know, maybe that's the same sort of vibe I'm starting to hear too, because you know that 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 continuity, right? And when you outline like all those changes that we've seen when it's gone from Force India to Racing Point now to Aston Martin, and all the people coming and going and all. All the changes, it's just like, well, how are you ever going to find any consistency whatsoever? I mean, you know, not just on the track, but just back at headquarters and in the factory, just if, if there's that much uh, going on. But I, I think that McLaren just uh, in general is a great case study that if you get, you know, you can be in a total shambles. But if you get the right people in and get them appointed to those right positions and then just let them do their jobs and then support them in those ways, good things can happen. Mm-hmm. But daily, that's where, so I agree with everything that you're saying. And I think McLaren's that perfect case study and it wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't slander Martin Whitmarsh. But I think the question is, does Aston Martin have the right people? I, I it, it's re, it's reassuring that Tim is a fan of Mike crack. I just look at Martin Whitmarsh and I look at the shambles. That I never he said I was McLaren a fan of the in. I never said I was a fan of the guy. I just you have that- a poster in your living room. I'm joking. What? I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. But I just I'm still skeptical that Aston Martin have the right people. And again, it was a nice weekend. Let's see how this plays out over the course of a campaign, and let's see how they treat their drivers and create an environment in which Sebastian Vettel would want to stay. But I think that McLaren, you're absolutely right. Case study, the right people, they've, they're left to do their jobs. They have total autonomy. That's clearly why Otmar left because he didn't believe he was going to have the level of autonomy he needed to execute. But I'm very skeptical of what Martin Whitmarsh is going to do to that team. Hammy's a hater. Aston Martin is back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, it's gonna be it's gonna be a rough couple rough couple of ones going going forward for Aston Martin. But this is a good start in the right direction. But Absolutely. let's just hope they can yeah. let's just hope they can keep it on yeah. that track. Um, 
Haas had an up and down sort of weekend, but I mean, Kevin Magnuson again, guys, <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's freaking awesome. Absolutely incredible. This guy. Right. And I think it's actually really, it's, 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 it's putting a huge spotlight on, on Mick Schumacher. And I hate to talk bad about Mick Schumacher because I know there's a lot of Mick Schumacher fans out there and they're going to come for my head, but <laughs> I don't know. He's having, it's, it's really rough right now, guys. It's really rough. Daily. Do you mind if I interject here? I just Go want to make for a quick it. statement. I think that what we've seen with Kevin Magnuson is the nail in the coffin that is the pay driver. And we know why, right? That in the cost cap era, the value of a pay driver is significantly less. But this was a team that was prepared to go into the campaign with Mick Schumacher and Nikita Mazepan. And for all those reasons we don't need to get into, Mazepan is gone. Of those two drivers, I think you could argue that MSC, Mick, was the superior driver. But you replace Mazepan with Kevin Magnuson, who was himself kicked out, I shouldn't say kicked out of Formula One, but lost his seat two years ago, and he is absolutely destroying he lost to, Mick. He, he lost to a paid driver. I mean, let's he, be honest, he right? did, he did, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But the fact that there's so much delta between Kevin and Mick is a little alarming, but I yeah. think obviously Haas knew that could be the case, and they brought in Kevin, albeit probably a year late because they probably should never have kind of kicked him out because obviously Mick could have benefited by his presence last year. But I think some delta, some deficiency is going to be expected. But the hope is that Mick's going to be able to learn and look at his data and look at his telemetry and listen to his feedback and prove. But I didn't think that the gap was going to be so astounding so soon. Yeah. You know, I think the K-Mag story, I think, is great because he comes in, uh, you know, a week and a half before the season. He hits the ground running. I mean, apart from that uh, that off weekend he had in Australia when he was not quite 100% physically and reflected uh, what happened on the track. I mean, uh, three other races, he's been really good. He's been in the points. He, the Haas has 15 points in the constructors, which is a mile ahead of where they were last year. But I, I'm going to throw this one out I, I, you know, because hindsight is a little bit 2020, uh, but I think it's uh, I, I still think it's a fun discussion to have because if you kind of take a look at what uh, what, what Kevin Magnuson is doing now, and I know it's a different car in 22 compared to 2021, but if you have Kevin Magnuson in that Haas last year, what was that car capable of? I mean, we just kind of like wrote it off. Oh, it's a terrible Great car. Question. They've, you Great know, they've question. just, you know, possibly they're putting all their resources and all their effort into designing the 2022 car, but maybe it just goes to the fact that they had two rookies and one of which was Nikita Mazepin, who was a rookie and also not the greatest racing driver that's, you know, maybe that car wasn't as bad as it was, you know, it's just food for thought. Yeah. I think that's actually a great, you know, piece of meat there. He just threw out and I'm just going <laughs> to <laughs> bite into it. Go for it. Tim. <laughs> I, I honestly, you know, I think if you look at, like you were saying, if you look at the Delta now, the gap between Magnuson and, and Schumacher, I, or I think it would still, it would still be something similar to last season. And here's why I say that is because, you know, Mick is a driver that he takes a bit of time before he learns, understands, and able to put everything that he's learned and understood and put it into practice. So if you look at um, FIA Formula 3, it took him two seasons to win a championship there, right? So that tells me that he's got to learn the tracks, learn the car, get comfortable with everything. And then the next season, you execute on all of that because nothing has changed. Formula two comes into formula two first season. A lot of it is learning second season, everything that he's learned, he puts it into practice, wins another championship in formula two comes into formula one. Doesn't have that teammate 
who has the experience that he can use as a barometer. And he's the guy. Let's put it that way, right? He was the guy at the team at Haas last season. And that's an older generation car. You're then moving into a newer generation car with what we've got now. So this is the type of stuff that's not going to change for Mick. And I think for, for him in particular, this may not be his season, right? He may continue to struggle, but I guarantee you, since the regulations are not changing that drastically for 2023, I think he'll be able to get back on top of this and give Kevin Magnuson a run for his money in 2023. I know what I'm, I know I'm projecting here and this is like a long way to go, but if you look at how Mick learns and I'm just using the data that we've actually seen that's factual, this, this is what it's telling us. Right. And yeah. so it could be some more struggles coming for Mick. Yeah. And I mean, we, we shouldn't be too overly negative. I mean, he did uh, start no. in P10. I mean, he had his best starting yeah. like position for, for the race in his career to date. Yeah, that's fair. Un- totally. un- unfortunately, he got involved in some of these extracurricular activities on the opening lap in which he put his left rear tire through the side of Nando's side pod. And, you know, he was uh, li- like Danny Ricardo. He dropped down through the running order and was tooling around at the back. And, you know, he struggled from, from there on out. I, I didn't look into it. I don't know if he had damage to his car or whatever after that incident with Fernando. But it was just unfortunate because he did qualify so well for the race. And, uh, you know, it, you just couldn't help but feel bad for him. And also for Fernando, he's had a bit of bad luck too in the last couple of races. I mean, he's definitely shown this, like uh, Hammy said a little while ago. I mean, at, at whatever he is now, 43 years old or whatever Fernando is, I mean, he's still showing that he's supremely fit and he's still very capable of uh, driving a Formula One car at a very good level. He's just not getting the opportunity to to show it. But anyways, just going back to the discussion at hand, uh, uh, between uh, the the two Haas drivers, yeah, m- maybe that is this this difficult year for for Mick Schumacher, but it could also be one of these. Maybe it's a necessary development year and going up, uh, you know, or being in that team with an experienced Formula One driver like Kevin Magnussen. Maybe that's what he needs to, because like, like, like you said, Tim, that he just didn't have that last year. And now he's got this guy that's not only been with Haas as, a, as an organization, but you know, he has the experience in Formula One. And maybe that's he just has to try and absorb as much uh, and then learn as much from that situation and, and look to the future. Because, look, if Ferrari, if Ferrari thinks that, you know, Mick was ready. They wouldn't have signed Carlos to uh, another two-year yes. deal. Yeah, right. Great they point. wouldn't. Yeah. They just would not have done it because one, if you know, Mick has extremely high commercial value that comes along with him. Right. You can't lose sight of that as well as the talent that's also there. So you have two things here. And if they don't see that right away, that means, you know, he just needs a little bit more seasoning, right? Like he's just not, he's not totally, that doesn't mean he's not going to be ready. It's just, he may not be ready just yet, just yet. Right. And so he's not the only driver on the grid who, who, who learns this way. Like he's not, there are others. I mean, and you can actually tell And for the people who are listening, the next time you watch qualifying, just watch the Delta times between teammates and see how each teammate gets along. Where if you were to go back to 2021, those Deltas are very close. Every single teammate is literally, it's 
Mercedes, Mercedes, Red Bull, Red Bull, Ferrari, Ferrari, McLaren, McLaren, Alpine, Alpine, right? They're right beside each other. Now it's it's a little bit different, it's a little bit more jumbled because that's how some of these drivers have to learn until they get the experience. That's a great point. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then the, the one other thing I just wanted to say as well uh, regarding with uh, with Mick is that I guess for for some of the OGs that have been around for a long, long time, that uh, maybe we're looking at Mick in a little bit of a different light. Because if you go back and look at what, what, his, what his dad did way back in the day, I mean, he literally burst into Formula One from from nowhere. And, you know, at, at, the, at the Belgian Grand Prix in 92. And then before you know it, he's he goes from Jordan. He's right, racing for Benetton. He's like competing for, uh, you know, contending for races and for championships. And he wins two world championships with, uh, with, with Benetton, I mean, and then you have the whole. Then he goes to Ferrari, and the, the whole legend of uh, Michael Schumacher from there. So I think for for some of us that uh, you know who are unfortunately really old, but kind of uh, look back at it. I mean, there there is you know, and, and I hate to do that when when you have like uh, drivers or any kind of athletes that that, that have had, you know, they're you know they're they're basically following in their father's footsteps because that's a very big shadow that you know michael casts and i I think sometimes we just have to kind of like take a deep breath and step back and give mick the opportunity to just develop but i think that's a great point that you Mm -hmm. make that if ferrari thought he was uh, ready then uh, they they wouldn't have uh, driven a dump truck load of money up to carla Sainz's house and say please stay with us for another two years not not that they're desperate but you know the keep in keep in mind as well that i think ferrari is probably pretty content with the Haas situation for Mick because, and you know, I said in the off season that Haas could possibly have been the worst possible place for Mick to be given the negativity and the toxicity around that team and the circumstances. Mm-hmm. But I think with their ever increasing integration with Ferrari, I think Ferrari is probably very happy. Obviously Haas has an office on the Marinello campus. Uh, they, they have a complete tech sharing agreement with that team. They share their wind tunnel, every transferable component that they can buy from Ferrari. They do. I think that Ferrari is probably pretty happy that if he's going to sit somewhere for a couple of years and continue to develop, it should be, and it might as well be Haas because I'm significantly more confident about what that team's future is now than I was Mm -hmm. even three months ago. But I think, Tim, you make a great point that obviously their expectation isn't that he's going to be in that seat for 24. It's probably going to be 25 or 26. um, And it gives them an opportunity to give, give Carlos signs a little bit of security and see what they can do with the pairing of with him and, in Leclerc. Yeah, because you also have to remember that Leclerc's contract's up to 2024 as well. So they have two drivers that are off the books right. in 2024. Right. That's a good point. And there's no and there's no one saying that Mick can't be in one of those seats in 2024. Absolutely. So there you have it. Guys, this has been a lot of fun, like always. Uh really enjoy our Sunday uh Grand Prix <laughs> reviews. It's always quite entertaining. Um it's a great way to wrap got up going a weekend. On. Yeah, it actually is for sure. Uh, guys, let me know what you got going on. Okay, well, we got our, our weekly show. We usually drops uh, Thursday night or Friday morning, depending where that's at. You can find us by just searching up a Scooter F1 podcast on Apple, Spotify, wherever you enjoy your, your podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Scooter F1 Pod. You can follow me on Twitter at MarkDailyF1. And you can follow Hammy on Twitter at Mark and Van City. And um, as always, it was great to be here. If we're not doing something with you after a race, we do a one on our own. You know, we've got the competition thing going on here, but it's <laughs> it's, it's meant with love. We enjoy it. But uh, it's all That's good. That's good stuff. <laughs> Guys, this has been fun. Thanks again. Thanks, Tim. <laughs>